Hello, and welcome back to the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 69, Slaves and Foreigners. Many of the myths central to the Greeks deal with their encounters and conflicts with other peoples, such as the Trojan War, the Amazonomachy, and the Centauromachy, as well as the adventures of the Argonauts and the Odyssey, all of whom explored the outermost reaches of geographical knowledge. These areas were thought to have been inhabited by monstrous races, descriptions of whom were brought back by travelers and were no doubt elaborated more and more each time. For example, they include the Astomoi, or the mouthless ones, who had holes in their faces instead of mouths. The Skiapods, or those with a shadow foot, a one-legged people who lied on their backs, shading their heads from the sun with a single huge foot. And the Kinokephaloi, or the dog-headed ones, who communicated by barking. There, of course, were many other monstrous peoples and individuals, but no figure quite epitomizes the horror of the other, though, as the Cyclops named Polyphemus whom Odysseus encounters in Book 9 of the Odyssey. Solitary, monstrous in size, possessing a single eye in the center of his forehead, stupid, contemptuous towards the gods, hostile towards strangers, ignorant of seafaring and agriculture, and a lacto-vegan, except when human flesh comes his way. In the Greek imagination, Polyphemus came to represent everything that they despised. These types of monstrous races were naturally viewed as uncivilized by the Greeks and would come to be known as barbarians. Precisely what the category of barbarian amounted to, in practical terms, is difficult to determine though. The most plausible origin of the word is that the Greeks called barbaroi, or barbarians, to those that uttered words that sounded to them like barbar. Barbarians, in other words, were people who could not speak Greek. In time, though, barbarian also came to acquire the pejorative meaning of ignorant, brutal, and savage. Typical examples of barbarian behavior include drinking undiluted wine, beer, and milk, like the Thracians, wearing effeminate clothing, like the Persians, and practicing circumcision, like the Phoenicians. Thucydides was of the belief that contemporary barbarians behaved similarly to the earliest inhabitants of Greece, first by carrying weapons around with them, and second by wearing loincloths when exercising. The most despised feature of barbarian society, however, was the degrading subjugation of its population to one man, meaning they were ruled by a king rather than being a free people. The notion of the barbarian was not something inherent in Greek culture from the beginning, though. For example, there's no trace of racial prejudice against the Trojans in the Iliad. In fact, the word barbaros never appears in Homer, neither is a noun or an adjective, even though there was ample opportunity for the bard to have done so. However, the word barbarophonoi, meaning of barbarous diction, does appear once in the Iliad, and it's in reference to a contingent of Carians who fought on the side of the Greeks, because the Greeks didn't understand what they were saying. But it doesn't have any negative connotation. More on that, Homer suggests that the regard for civilized values on the part of the Trojans is equal, if not superior, to that of the Greeks, in part because we see the war as much through the eyes of the royal Trojan household, which is presented to us as a normative family, as we do through the eyes of the Greeks, who are presented to us as unrestrained, willfully disobedient, and hostile. It wasn't until Aeschylus' play, The Persians, that a people known as the Barbarians were depicted as a stereotypical group with a homogenous culture that was the antithesis of being Greek. This change came about as a result of the Persian invasion of Greece, an event that bred terror and loathing in the Greek population. 
The stereotype was also disseminated through art, notably in portrayals of the battle between the Lapiths and the Centaurs, as we have mentioned so often in previous episodes. Depictions of this mythological encounter, in which right clearly triumphs over wrong, no doubt served to bolster Greek self-esteem in the aftermath of the Persian invasion. Although the Greeks differentiated themselves from a homogenous group of people who did not speak Greek by using the pejorative term barbaroi, there was no unified political idea of Greekness. In fact, the Greeks never had a shared capital, a single ruling family, or even a clearly defined boundary, marking themselves off from non-Greeks. On the cultural front, though, an idea of Greekness was promoted by common blood, a common language, a common set of gods, a common mythology, and a common set of social institutions. There were also a number of Panhellenic sanctuaries, including Olympia, Delphi, Eleusis, and so forth. But on an everyday basis, being a Greek meant far less politically and culturally than being an Athenian or a Corinthian, for example. It is sometimes suggested that the Greeks more or less invented racism, single-handedly, by holding up their culture as a shining example of everything that was noble and praiseworthy, while at the same time rubbishing the culture of everybody else, particularly the Persians. The truth is more complex, though. Even if the Greeks considered their culture to be superior to others, we should not assume that they were all out-and-out bigots. Certainly, there were some Greeks who saw much to admire in other cultures, particularly Persian. The historian Herodotus, for example, was so enamored with the Persians that he became known as Philobarbaros, or barbarian lover. Overall, the Greek attitude towards the Persians was probably a complex mixture of fascination, envy, and contempt. Despite the highly negative view of barbarian culture that many Greeks held, there is no evidence to suggest that barbarians were unwelcome or subjected to mistreatment if they ever traveled to Greek cities. On the contrary, they figure prominently among Athens' Medic population, and in particular, the Sidonians of Phoenicia, a Semitic people, actually enjoyed a privileged status that was not extended to other Medics, as they were exempted from the Medic tax and other financial burdens. We will discuss Medics in Athens more later in this episode. Similar to barbarian, the status of being a foreigner, as the Greeks understood the term, does not permit an easy definition either. Primarily, it signified such peoples whose languages were unintelligible to the Greeks, making them barbaroi. But it could also be used to describe Greeks who spoke in a different dialect and with a different accent. Notable among this later category were the Macedonians, whom many Greeks regarded as semi-barbaric. Prejudice towards Greeks on the part of other Greeks was not limited to those who lived on the fringes of the Greek world either. The Boeotians, who were inhabitants of central Greece and whose ethnic credentials were impeccable, were routinely mocked for their stupidity and gluttony. Ethnicity is a fluid concept, even at the best of times. When it suited their purposes, the Greeks also divided themselves into Ionians and Dorians. The distinction was emphasized at certain times, especially during the Peloponnesian War, but in other periods of history, the Ionian-Dorian divide carried less weight, though it no doubt helped to bolster Greek-on-Greek racism. From about the 6th century BC onwards, though, there were less Greeks being slaves for other Greeks, and it started to be that it was foreigners who were slaves in Greece. And so we start to get the idea coming out more and more clearly that not only were foreigners the ones who were slaves, but that foreigners were designed to be slaves. We see some of these ideas in Herodotus and the Hippocratic texts, where we see Asiatic types like the Persians described as having different political systems, customs, and even different climatic conditions that made them soft and weak, and they were also viewed as being enslaved by the regime that they were under. Of course, these Greek views were enforced by the fact that conventionally and routinely, Persian kings would refer to their subjects as slaves. 
A bunch of other ethnic groups, like the Scythians, were considered inferior too, because they lived in a cold, wet climate and were nomadic, whereas the Greeks had all the right conditions to make them a superior culture. We get these sort of ideas even more so in the 4th century BC, with writers like Plato and Aristotle. All of this stuff contributed to arguments and justifications for slavery. And so that brings us to slavery, our next major topic in today's episode. Slavery was a very common practice in ancient Greece, and some ancient writers considered it to be a natural way of life, and even that it is necessary. In fact, slavery as an institution was not seriously or extensively questioned in antiquity. We do get a little bit of questioning, but not anything like an abolitionist movement. For example, Euripides, who was often a social commentator in his plays, gives hints of criticism, particularly in his Trojan women, where the women are waiting to be enslaved and the Greeks are shown as cruel and unjust. In general, slavery seems to have been deemed a normal and acceptable state of affairs, at least by the upper-class elite, who were of course the ones writing the texts we have as evidence. Regardless, its existence at the heart of ancient Greece is a source of considerable consternation to those who admire Greek culture for its supposed enlightened humanism. Still, though, it's dangerous to project modern customs back into the ancient world, and it is important to acknowledge that every known ancient Mediterranean society practiced some form of slavery, and that the percentage of slaves to free would have varied greatly, even within the Greek world. Outside of the helot system at Sparta, which we described in episode 23, and which in itself is very unique, sources for slavery in ancient Greece are focused primarily on slavery in Athens. However, the few sources that we do have are often fragmented and incomplete. No treatises were specifically devoted to the subject, and most of what is accounted for on the historical record is in regards to their sources of revenue. Like women, slaves were a mutic group, because although they were numerous, their names and thoughts were not recorded, and so few have left their mark on the historical record. Comedies and tragedies talk about slaves, but it's usually to represent stereotypes, such as the motif of the clever slave who outwits his master, which would pass down into Roman comedy too. Other textual information can be found in small nuggets in several of the law court speeches. Xenophon's Oikonomicus gives references to how to organize slaves. Aristotle's politics is more ideology-based, and Book 1 includes his theories for justifying slavery and the relationship of men, women, and children to slaves. Plato's Laws is a philosophical discussion of managing political strife through an ideal set of laws that includes some comments on slavery. And finally, Athenaeus's Dipnosophistae has many quotes from earlier authors, some of which are on slavery. It should be noted, though, that they are all writing for an audience that already understands how ancient Greek slavery worked, and thus they are making references that the audience would have understood perfectly well. So sometimes we get bits of information that can be misinterpreted without context. Furthermore, slavery is not something that leaves behind much trace in the archaeological record, as it is hard to identify any sort of defined area, as slave quarters or slave burial sites, for example. We do have some inscriptions of manumissions and building accounts that are useful in giving us an idea about prices and occupations for slaves, and a few artifacts, like shackles, but images on vases and sculptures tend to make no substantial differentiation between slaves and medic craftsmen. And as we will see, sometimes there wasn't much of a difference. So basically these sources are all complicated, and we have to extrapolate out from it to work out what was going on behind the scenes. We should also note that slavery was not an absolute condition, but one that admitted many different statuses. At one end of the scale were the shadow slaves, who were those who, as Aristotle puts it, had the same status as an animate or insold piece of property. 
In other words, the chattel slave is the personal property of the master or the state, and thus as an item of property, the slave can be bought or sold. This is a permanent condition, meaning there is nothing the slave can personally do to earn back his or her freedom, unless they are freed by their master. By contrast, there is debt bondage, where a free person pledges himself to provide either labor, crops, or money in the hope of paying off an outside debt. So they are effectively enslaved until their debt is paid off, and then they can go free, unlike chattel slaves. That is different, though, from debt enslavement, where the debtor is permanently the slave of the person he owes money to, so he thus becomes a chattel slave. At the other end were those who lived independently and remitted a part of their income to their masters, which is what Sparta employed with its helots and Athens with its hectomoroi. That is until they eventually could make payments and became debtors themselves. There are also other features distinct to chattel slavery in particular. They include aspects in the ways in which slaves were treated, which could invoke violence, domination, alienation, and dishonor. However, there's a lot of evidence for the good treatment of slaves and good relationships between slaves and masters, so it wasn't necessarily completely ghastly. Also, although the institution of slavery was so abhorrent and vicious in so many respects, it nonetheless provided some measure of economic security in an otherwise dangerous and unpredictable world. However, it would be quite wrong to give the impression that slavery was a benign institution. Furthermore, it did not seem to have occurred to anyone that the existence of such a large servile labor force depressed the wages of the poor, or if it did, no one did anything about it at least. The origins of slavery are not precisely understood, but there certainly were slaves in the Mycenaean period, as documented on numerous Linear B tablets. However, there doesn't seem to be any continuity between then and the time of Homer, where social structures reflected those of the Dark Ages. Certainly, though, the institution of slavery was once again in existence by the end of the 8th or early 7th century BC, when it appears to have been widespread, even amongst the poorest sections of society. In Homer, slaves were called demos, referring to prisoners of war. In the Iliad, they were mainly women taken to be concubines, while the men were either ransomed or killed on the battlefield. In the Odyssey, though, we do see some male slaves, a prime example being the swineherd Eumaeus. He was the son of the Greek ruler of Syros, but was kidnapped by Phoenician pirates who sold him to Odysseus' father as a slave. He was treated well and was even considered to be a member of Odysseus' oikos. It is difficult, though, to determine when slave trading began in the Archaic period. Hesiod in his works and days is of the opinion that an ox and a bot woman are an essential part of a small farmer's holding. It's also clear that at least early on, other Greeks, as well as foreigners, were included amongst the slaves. Also, in the Archaic period, as we discussed in episode 24, many Greeks, particularly in Athens, became enslaved as a result of debt bondage, although this technically was a temporary status, and at least some who entered into it would have later bought back their freedom. In practice, though, it was a very difficult condition to escape from, and more frequently than not, it became not only permanent, but also hereditary. One of the greatest achievements of Solon as we have seen, was that he was able to free all of the Athenians who had become enslaved as a result of debt bondage, and passed a law that from henceforth, no Athenian was allowed to enslave another Athenian for debt. In other parts of the Greek world, though, debt bondage remained a common practice. According to Theopompus, Chios was the first polis to organize a slave trade, and also enjoyed an early democratic process in the 6th century BC in the form of a town council. 
As a result, an ironic aspect of Greek history is the hand-in-hand advancement of both freedom and slavery, and this is something that we see too with Athens and her empire in the 5th century BC. The classical Greeks had several words to indicate slaves. The most general word for a slave is doulos, used in opposition to free man, or eleutheros. It's also a word that can be used more metaphorically to refer to political subjugation. In other words, those who were under the rule of a tyrant might be described as douloi. It was also used to describe a city that might be under the domination of another city. For example, the Peloponnesians used this word to describe the cities in the Athenian Empire, basically calling them the slaves of Athens. Then we have a bunch of words that refer to the very basic nature of what slaves might be doing. The term oiketis was used, meaning one who lives in a house, referring particularly to household servants. There are also words like therapon, meaning servant, and akuluthos, meaning follower. And then we have some terms that really start to dehumanize the slave, such as anthropos, which simply means human being, but was used pejoratively, as if he was some unnamed and undifferentiated human being. To strip a slave of even less identity, and indeed as a human being altogether, he might be referred to as a soma, which means physical body, or an andropodon, which literally means a thing with the feet of a man as opposed to tetrapodon, or a thing with four feet, referring to the livestock, which was a term that had as dehumanizing a definition as one could devise. Finally, we also have one that encompasses clearly the legal and political status of slaves, that being pace, which means child or boy. It can be applied to a slave of any age, and thus it was used to underline the fact that whatever their age, their status was like that of a child because the slave will never be able to operate as a free and independent adult. A line in Aristophanes' wasps by the chorus of old men, who resemble wasps in their behavior, say to the slave Xanthius, quote, How now, my boy? For if a man is old still, if he is beaten, we may call him a boy. End quote. In fact, the verb paeon, which comes from pace, literally means to beat. So we see here the intrinsic connection between slaves being beaten as if they were children who can be controlled. Comedic sources sometimes give us the sense of how slaves felt about these types of names, particularly the term pace, and they highlight some social norms and attitudes as well. Athenaeus quotes a fragment from a 4th century BC comedic play by Epicrates, titled The Slave Who Couldn't Be Sold, in which a house slave complains, quote, What is more hateful than to be called to a drinking party with boy? and by some adolescent who hasn't grown a beard yet, or to have to bring in the chamber pot and have to look at half-eaten cream cakes and fowl lying there in front of us. And the women tell us that it isn't right for a slave to eat any of these things, even when they are leftovers. What makes me really angry is that they call those of us who do eat any of these things greedy gluttons, end quote. So this is implying the Greek idea that a slave can't control his appetite, and so in that sense he was a moral inferior. Hand-in-hand with this idea is what led slaves to have special sexual restrictions also. Laws forbade slaves from exercising in the wrestling grounds along with the free citizens. This was certainly a venue for men to meet and engage in pederastic relationships, but slaves were also forbidden from being the lover of young citizen boys. When they did engage in sexual intercourse, male slaves also had to be the passive individual. Like women, they had to be penetrated. This is also an area where we get a metaphorical idea of slavish behavior that is to be avoided. In other words, the idea that a slave is too dependent on their bodily desires, and that includes sex, but also food and drink, 
And so anything that involves indulging oneself in any sort of bodily pleasure was seen as behaving like a slave, especially because that usually involved monetary expenditure. For example, in Ascanius's law court speech, titled Against Marcus, the speaker at one point says, quote, His father had left him a very substantial property, which he had himself devoured, as I shall show as my speech proceeds. He did these things because he was a slave to the most shameful of pleasures, elaboration and extravagance of dinners, flute girls and call girls, hetaira, dancing and other activities, none of which ought to get the better of any man who is well-born and free, end quote. In this case, the main issue was that Tamarcus, as a youth, engaged in prostitution with an older man. It was not the sexual relationship that was the issue, but the fact that he was getting money for it. So in selling his body for money, he was acting like a slave. There will be more on prostitution and slaves' role in it in a future episode. It is difficult to estimate the number of slaves in ancient Greece, given the lack of a precise census and variations in definitions of what a slave was during that era. But it is believed that the number of slaves in Athens greatly outnumbered those in any other Greek community. Although we don't have any reliable figures to determine the size of even its total population, it has been estimated that there were probably 80,000 to 100,000 slaves of all kinds active throughout Attica at any one time in the 5th and 4th centuries BC, which is believed to be about one slave to every three of the free population. All of these slaves came to Greece by one of three primary means, by being born a slave, by being captured in war, or by being sold into slavery either via piracy, banditry, or voluntarily selling oneself into slavery to pay off a debt. Piracy and banditry provided a significant and consistent supply of slaves, though this varied according to the era and the region. Pirates and brigands, after capturing someone or someones, would demand ransom whenever the status of their catch warranted it. Whenever ransom was not paid, or the catch was too poor to warrant it, captives would then be sold to a trafficker. In certain areas, piracy was practically a national specialty, described by Thucydides as the old-fashioned way of life. Such was the case in Acarnia, Crete, and Aetolia. Outside of Greece, this was also the case of the Illyrians, the Phoenicians, and the Etruscans. During the Hellenistic period, the Cilicians and the mountain peoples from the coasts of Asia Minor also got into the mix. All of these peoples would sell their captives to the highest bidder at slave auctions. Thucydides says that the island of Chios auctioned off the largest number of slaves in the Aegean. In addition, Delos, Ephesus, and Byzantion were other principal centers for slave auctions. However, slave traders were viewed with much distaste, and it was seen as one of the most shameful occupations, despite the fact that slave owning was so widespread. Xenophon in his symposium writes, quote, Through poverty, some men steal, or burgle, or become slavers. End quote. Most slaves from the late archaic to the classical periods forward were not Greek, but were foreign, as can be seen from an inscription describing the auction 414 BC of the property of those involved in the infamous Broken Herm scandal. It included 16 slaves, 10 men, 5 women, and 1 boy. Of these, 5 were from Thrace, 3 from Caria, 2 each from Syria and Illyria, and one each from Colchis, Scythia, Lydia, and Malta. We also know that slaves came from Cappadocia, Phrygia, and Macedon. In other words, they came from the fringes of the Greek world or beyond. 
According to Herodotus, the Thracians, who occupied the territory that approximately corresponds to modern-day Bulgaria, seem to have made it a custom to offer their children for sale as slaves. The names Thrax and Thrada, meaning Thracian male and Thracian female respectively, were among the most common slave names in Athens and appear frequently in the comedies of Aristophanes. And so the names given to slaves often had a geographical link, and the nationality of a slave was a significant criterion for major purchasers. The ancient advice was not to concentrate too many slaves of the same origin in the same place in order to limit the risk of a revolt. It is also probable that certain nationalities were considered more productive as slaves than others. But although slaves came from a variety of regions, what most of them had in common, from an Athenian perspective, was the fact that they were assimilable to the categorization of barbarian. It was unthinkable that Greeks from Corinth, Thebes, Sparta, or any other Greek polis would have served as slaves in Athens. On the other hand, some slaves elsewhere were Greek, partly through capture by pirates at sea or brigands on land, but most presumably through war. By the rules of warfare of the period, the victor possessed absolute rights over the vanquished, whether they were soldiers or not, and enslavement, while not systematic, was still a common practice. The existence of Greek slaves was a constant source of discomfort for free Greeks, and the enslavement of cities was also a controversial practice. Some generals refused, and some cities passed laws to forbid the practice. Conversely, the emancipation by ransom of a city that had been entirely reduced to slavery carried great prestige. But the norm by this point was that captured Greeks were ransomed and foreigners were made into shadow slaves. Others, of course, were the children of two slave parents, who thus became slaves themselves. Curiously, though, even though the Greeks allowed male and female slaves to enter into relationships, they did not systematically breed their slaves for even more slaves. Perhaps the explanation is economic, as it may have been cheaper to purchase a slave rather than raise one, since a slave child isn't much use until it reaches a certain age. Additionally, childbirth placed the slave mother's life at risk, and with a high rate of infant mortality in the ancient world, the baby was not guaranteed to survive to adulthood. Regardless, children's slaves did come about, but with stipulations, as indicated by the following remark made by Iscomachus in Xenophon's treatise called Oikonomicus, or Household Management. Quote, I showed my wife also the women's area, divided by a bolted door from the men's area, in order that nothing should be carried out from the inside, which should not be, and in order that the slaves should not breed without our approval. Good slaves are generally more loyal if they have children, but if bad ones cohabit together, then they are more resourceful at devising mischief. End quote. Another oikonomicus is written by someone named Pseudo-Aristotle, because it has been ascribed to him, but its authenticity is doubted. Anyways, he writes, quote, We should also let slaves have children to serve as hostages for good behavior. End quote. So as we can see, this is quite a hard-nosed approach. A system of both punishment, but also a reward, that was part of managing one's slaves and getting the most out of them. By contrast, though, all of Sparta's slaves, known as the Helots, procreated exclusively, and thus were a racially homogenous Greek-speaking people. Racial homogeny was generally rare among slaves, though in other Greek communities it was the rule, including Thessaly in northern Greece and Syracuse in Sicily. Sexual relations between female slaves and the master of the house were another matter altogether. Although he would have been within his legal right to do so, the fact that the wife of Euphiletus taunts her husband, in Lysias' legal speech, titled on the murder of Eratosthenes, with wanting to get his hands on their slave girl, suggests that these type of affairs were not accepted as a matter of course. 
The children born as a result of such associations would probably have been disposed of by exposure. There will be more on that in a future episode. Still, though, at most times in Greek history, there are probably more people who were born into slavery or who were sold into slavery than those who became slaves as a result of war, although the situation began to be reversed from the 3rd century BC onwards, when the Romans enslaved many Greeks whom they themselves had captured in war. Since the Romans were a large consumer of slaves, this led to an increase in the market of slavery and more and more piracy. However, after the Romans conquered the Mediterranean, they eradicated piracy to protect their trade routes. But of course, this will be a topic for an episode way down the road. As we discussed last episode, arguably the most dangerous and exhausting work performed by Athenian slaves was in the silver mines of Larion in southeast Attica. Inscriptions reveal that the vast majority of industrial slaves, among whom there were many thousands, were non-Greek. Xenophon in his memoirs of Socrates informs us that the price of slaves who served in this capacity could be as low as 50 drachmas. The hirer was illegally obligated to pay for food, and ominously, to fill vacancies as they occurred. This gave a return of 40 or 50 percent, or 60 drachmas a year, on an initial cost of about 160 drachmas. It is not surprising then that other people did the same, and this was one of the most coveted investment opportunities for wealthy Athenians. It was so lucrative that Xenophon even went so far as to suggest that the state should buy a large number of slaves so that their leasing would assure the upkeep of all of its citizens. It has been estimated that the number of slaves working in the Larion mines or in the mills processing the silver ore was around 30,000. Of course, depreciation presumably applied, especially to those slaves who worked inside the mines. Although the silver mines at Larion were a great advantage to Athenian finance, the cost and human suffering was great. As we discussed last episode, conditions were appalling, and because of it, a good number of mining slaves must have been among the 20,000 or so slaves who, according to Thucydides, escaped to the Spartans in the last years of the Peloponnesian War. Work continued uninterrupted for 24 hours a day, and it has been estimated that shifts were 10 hours in length. Only occasionally do the sources shed some light on the terrible living conditions that some of these slaves might have faced, as in the following passage by Diodorus Siculus. Quote, Slaves who work in the mines produce unimaginable revenue for their masters, wearing their bodies out, toiling day and night in the shafts underground. Many of them die due to the terrible conditions. They get no respite or interruption in their toil, but are forced by their overseers, who beat them, to endure the terrible conditions. And so, their lives are thrown away, though there are some who endure the hardship over a long period of time, due to their physical strength and psychological stamina. For them, death is preferable to life because of the enormity of their sufferings, end quote. That was the blackest side of the picture, though, and many other slaves must have had reasonably pleasant, relatively contented lives in the households of their masters. According to the sources, it appears that the majority of Athenian households owned at least one slave. Aristophanes in his play Plutos portrays poor peasants as having several slaves, and Aristotle defines an oikos as containing both free men and slave alike. And so it seems that most Athenian households had two or three slaves, while some had a half a dozen or more, and the more wealthy possessed between 10 and 20. The super wealthy, though, owned a great many more. Plato, who owned five slaves himself, describes the super wealthy as someone who owned 50 or more slaves. However, although the huge slave populations that we would see with the Roman Latifundia was not common in ancient Greece, there were a few exceptional cases. 
For example, as we mentioned before, according to Xenophon, Nicias, one of the richest men in Athens in the late 5th century BC, owned a thousand slaves, whom he leased out to fellow citizens at the rate of one obol per slave a day. This was definitely not the norm, though. Regardless, the possession of at least one slave in the household was regarded as not only a necessity, but also a basic right in classical Athens, and only the poorest of families would not have owned at least one. In a lawsuit written by Lysias, called For the Invalid, in which the crippled speaker states with great humiliation, quote, I have a trade, but I don't earn much. I find it difficult making ends meet, and I can't save enough money to buy anyone to do the work for me. End quote. This was because, generally speaking, slaves were cheap. Naturally, the purchase price of a slave varied according to such criteria as skills, age, looks, and place of origin. And an educated slave, who could read and write, fetched considerably more in the slave market than one who was only good for menial duties. Likewise, a pretty young girl cost much more than an ugly old woman. Slaves with management skills were also extremely expensive. Xenophon says in his memorabilia that Nicias, who we mentioned earlier, paid a talent, or 6,000 drachmas, for a Thracian slave to manage the men he loaned out to work in the silver mines. A slave in good health probably cost the equivalent of half a year's salary. For example, Xenophon valued a healthy slave capable of working in the mines at 180 drachmas. The inscription relating to the public auction, which we mentioned earlier, prices a Syrian male slave at 240 drachmas, a Thracian female at 220 drachmas, and a little carrying boy at 72 drachmas. And the average value of these 16 auction slaves was 160 drachmas, which is roughly equivalent to what it costs to keep a slave for a year, two or three obols a day for 365 days. They included skilled workers, a goldsmith, a cobbler, a fabric maker, a maker of cooking spits, and a donkey driver. So it is not surprising that we hear of slaves being a useful investment. Furthermore, buyers enjoyed a guarantee that a transaction could be invalidated if the bought slave turned out to be crippled and the buyer had not been warned about it. Although the work of slaves did not always take place in the context of the oikos, domestic slaves, sometimes known as oiketai, which literally means members of an oikos, or household, were the ancient Mediterranean's ultimate labor-saving device for the home. Xenophon in his Oikonomicus says, quote, After that, we showed to the slaves who would use them, where they should store the various utensils which they would need daily for baking, cooking, woolworking, and so on and handed the utensils over, telling them to keep them safely, end quote. Those who worked in houses often established good relationships with their masters and their families, looked after their children, and used and protected their property. They served in practically every capacity, including that of washerwoman, cook, caregiver, reader, gardener, porter, cleaner, handyman, tutor, escort, messenger, nurse, and so forth. Most of the slaves employed in the oikos appear to have been female, as they carried out the domestic tasks, while the male slaves performed the manual labor and also stood in for their master at his trade and accompanied him on trips. As traveling companions, they accompanied their masters when they were called up to serve in the army. No doubt in the larger households, there was some division of labor. Houseborn slaves, called oikogenais, 
often constituted a privileged class, especially the ones who were the offspring of the master of the house. They were often entrusted to escort the young citizen children in their travels as a pedagogus or a leader of children, in the literal sense of the word. They were given this duty as a sort of slave bodyguard by fathers who wanted to protect their sons from any sort of unwanted advances, usually older men looking for new pederastic relationships. There will be more on that in a future episode. Anyways, the word pedagogos would later come to mean teacher and have an educational component, and pedagogy is the discipline that deals with the theory and practice of teaching. The extent to which slaves were employed in large numbers in agricultural labor is unclear, though. In other words, we do not know to what extent the economy of the Greek household was based on slave labor. A controversial debate in scholarly circles with huge implications for our appreciation and assessment of Greek culture and its contribution to Western civilization. Some scholars believe that large numbers of male slaves worked on farms, especially when a wealthy owner had large amounts of land. These were not typically large estates, though, but several smaller ones scattered about Attica. This was partly practical in order to minimize crop losses due to environmental conditions, but also because Athenian inheritance laws meant that land had to be divided up equally between sons, and some land, of course, was acquired through dowries. Xenophon, in his Oikonomicus, confirms the presence of dozens of slaves working on the estates of one wealthy owner, but elsewhere he makes references to the practice of hiring free citizens as farmhands. Furthermore, we don't know how prevalent it was to use slave labor to hire out free citizens as labor. We just know that both practices existed together. Other scholars stress the grounding of the agricultural economy in the small family farm that was worked by the independent peasant farmer as the norm, and not these larger, wealthier estates with many slaves and hired laborers. Furthermore, agriculture is seasonal work, so they would only need a slave during certain times of the year. So perhaps the small family farms might have had one or two all-purpose slaves who helped around the house, and also helped during critical points at the agricultural year. To me, at least, it seems that with the exception of Spartan agriculture and Athenian silver mining, there is little evidence to suggest that the Greeks depended on slavery for their primary means of agricultural production. Overall, then, it remains questionable to assert that the achievements of Greek civilization were only made possible by slavery, though they were certainly enhanced by it. However, regardless of how prevalent they were in use and in what capacity, when slaves were owned, they were considered to be a part of their master's household. A newly bought slave underwent an initiation ceremony, similar to that which a bride underwent on first entering her new home by having dried figs and nuts showered over him or her. This was intended to place the slave under the protection of Hestia, the goddess of the hearth. Close ties sometimes arose between master and slave. For instance, we see in the Odyssey when Odysseus reveals himself to his faithful slaves Eumaeus and Philoetius on his return to Ithaca after 20 years that they throw their arms around him and kiss him. Female slaves often developed close relationships as well with their mistresses, as with the case of both Medea and Phaedra in Tragedy, who discuss their deepest feelings with their old nurses, and depictions of mistress and maid figure prominently on Athenian grave monuments. Testimony to the fact that the two spent much time together in the gynecheon, or women's quarters, due to the relative seclusion of upper-class women. There will be more on that in future episodes. Furthermore, in classical Athens, slaves were occasionally buried within the family plots of their oikos, beside their masters and mistresses. Slaves also occasionally received medical attention. 
Xenophon in his Memoirs of Socrates implies that it was not uncommon to summon a physician when a household slave fell sick, and some of the case studies in the work of Hippocrates, entitled Epidemics, involve slaves. Although the slaves even took part in most of the civic and family cults, and shared the gods of their masters, they were allowed to keep their own religious customs if they had any. Ancient writers considered that Attic slaves enjoyed a peculiarly happy lot compared to elsewhere in the Greek world. Overall, the treatment of slaves at Athens must have varied greatly from one household to the next, depending in large part on the temperament of the owner. They were the property of their master, who could dispose of them as he saw fit. He could give, sell, rent, or bequeath them. He could scatter the family members at any time, too. The tragic playwright Euripides said in his play Ion, quote, One thing alone brings shame to a slave, and that is the name. In all other respects, a slave, if he is good, is no worse than a free man in anything. End quote. Regardless, the difference was still there, though. Slaves had much fewer legal rights than citizens. He or she could not marry nor own anything, and they were represented by their master in all judicial proceedings. That meant that slave masters were legally responsible for the actions of their slaves. A misdemeanor that would result in a fine for a free man would result in a flogging for the slave, and the ratio seems to have been one lash for one drachma. Plato in his Gorgias comments on the lot of slaves in a legal sense, saying, quote, This experience is not that of a man, being wronged, but as the experience of some slave, he uses the word andropon, or some man-footed creature here, who would be better dead than alive, who cannot, when he is wronged and humiliated, come to his own defense, or to the defense of anyone for whom he cares, end quote. The same prejudice is shown in Aristotle's definition of a slave as a tool that happens to be alive, and a possession that breathes. One writer claims that, quote, the first and most necessary kind of property, the best and most manageable kind, is man. Therefore, the first step is to procure good slaves. End quote. If a slave was required to be a witness in a lawsuit, his or her testimony was only considered admissible when tortured. In other words, they weren't torturing the slave for something he or she has done, but for evidence about something that somebody else has done. Of course, this sounds very irrational and illogical, and even some ancient commentators pointed this out. Regardless, we get a lot of references to this business of torture in the law court speeches. For example, the speaker of the speech by Lysias, titled On the Murder of Eratosthenes, gives advice to a man named Euphiletus, saying, quote, Do not suppose that I have approached you from any desire to interfere in your business. The person who is disgracing you and your wife happens to be our mutual enemy. If you catch your slave, the one who goes to the market for you and waits on you, and if you torture her, you will find out everything. End quote. Of course, this is in reference to his wife having an affair. The question, though, is how often was this form of torture actually carried out? It seems like it was a complicated process, though, as both the prosecutor and the defendant had to agree that the slave should be tortured. We have evidence in the speeches of 40 times where a speaker challenged the opposing party to get evidence by torture, but only in two of those 40 cases was it accepted. In the two that were accepted, it seems to have never come to fruition. Furthermore, there are no actual descriptions of slaves being tortured, at least in the evidence that has survived to us, so we do not know what methods were applied, if it was accepted by both sides. And so it doesn't seem to have been a regular procedure, and it is very unclear as to how often it actually occurred. 
Regardless, the fact that it existed and that there was a procedure very clearly shows that there was this idea that slaves were moral inferiors who couldn't be relied upon to tell the truth unless under the threat of pain, and this method of extracting evidence could not be imposed on free citizens. There was also the law against hubris, or outrage. In drama, hubris is seen as being arrogant to the point of placing oneself on the level of a god. But legally, it is a bit different, as it refers to offenses against someone who is shamed by someone else, especially if that shaming is for the gratification of the offender. And that could include sexual assault, physical assault, theft, and so forth. It was an important law because it protected the poor in that it made it harder for the rich to treat them as slaves, but it extended to slaves in Athens also. In a speech by Ascanes titled Against Tamarcus, the speaker says, quote, If any Athenian shall outrage a freeborn child, the parent or guardian of the child shall demand a specific penalty. If the court condemns the accused to death, he shall be delivered to the constables and put to death the same day. If he be condemned to pay a fine, and be unable to pay the fine immediately, he must pay within eleven days after the trial, and he shall remain in prison until the payment is made. The same action shall hold against those who abuse the persons of slaves. End quote. Given that slaves could be beaten, tortured, bought, sold, and exploited for sexual purposes, the type of hubris committed against a slave must have been quite extreme to have been counted as such, because these types of things would have been normal hubris for a citizen. And we don't have any evidence for any prosecutions for hubris against a slave. But nevertheless, the fact that this law existed gives some sense of minimal protection for slaves. And we see once again in Ascanes' speech against Marcus that the speaker had some level of surprise that slaves were included in this. He says, quote, Now perhaps someone, on first hearing the law, may wonder for what possible reason this word slaves was added to the law against hubris. But if you reflect on the matter, fellow citizens, you will find this to be the best provision of all. For it was not for the slaves that the lawgiver was concerned. But he wished to accustom you to keep a long distance away from the crime of outraging free men. And so he added the prohibition against the outraging even of slaves. In a word, he was convinced that in a democracy, that man is unfit for citizenship who outraged any person whatsoever. End quote. So basically, his conclusion was that it was intended to help citizens avoid hubris. In other words, it is part of what it meant to be a citizen. We see a similar idea in a speech of Demosthenes, titled Against Medius, in which the speaker says, quote, You hear, Athenians, the humanity of the law, which does not think it right that even slaves should be treated with hubris. Well then, by the gods, if one were to take this law to the barbarians from whom the slaves are imported to Greece— praising you and describing the city of Athens to them, saying there are some Greek people so gentle and humane in their manners that although they have been wronged by you and naturally have ancestral hostility towards you, even so, the slaves who they have acquired by paying a price for them, they do not think it right to treat with hubris, but have publicly made this law to prevent it, and by now they have inflicted the death penalty on many who broke this law. End quote. Despite all of this, though, Slaves were protected by law against violent abuse in an indirect way. The Athenians couldn't just kill a slave, which seems to have been a law that extends back to Draco and Solon. Also, if a master killed a slave, he would have had to sway the authorities to sanction it, or otherwise he would be prosecuted. 
since it was virtually impossible for slaves to lodge a complaint against their masters, because they could not represent themselves in court. A master who excessively mistreated a slave, or even killed his own slave, could be prosecuted by any citizen, called the graffe hubrius. If a slave was mistreated by someone who wasn't his master, the master could initiate litigation for damages and interest, called the dike blabis. This is because Athens had a law that forbid the striking of another person's slave, and as we have seen, slaves mixed freely with other people. Indeed, one conservative in the old oligarch complains, quote, There is a very great lack of discipline amongst the slaves and medics in Athens. You are not allowed to strike a slave there, nor will a slave step aside for you. The reason for this Athenian custom I shall explain. If there were a law that permitted a free man to strike a slave, medic, or freedman, you would often find yourself hitting an Athenian on the assumption that he was a slave, because ordinary citizens there wear no better clothes than slaves or medics and look no different. End quote. Because of their fear of mistaken identity and inability to punish others' bad behavior publicly, it astonished other Greeks that the Athenians tolerated backtalk from slaves. Although we lack a single account written by a slave telling us what he or she felt about his or her condition, Aristophanes' frogs provide some insight into the kind of gossip that slave owners imagine their slaves engaging in, when out of earshot, and though humorous, it reveals the latent paranoia that probably characterized the attitude of many slave owners. One of the rare extended discussions on slavery can be found in Aristotle's Politics, and he makes references also in his other works. And as so often was the case with ancient Greek writers, he contradicts himself at a number of points. One of the important things, though, is that he makes a distinction between what he calls slaves by physis, or natural law, referring to those born in captivity, and slaves by nomos, or man-made law, referring to those captured in war. He proposed this distinction in response to those who regarded the very existence of slavery as contrary to nature. He defends this business of ruling over slaves by going through four main arguments. First is what he sees the characteristics of natural slaves as being. In other words, what are the deficiencies that a person just naturally has that qualifies them to be natural slaves, to include things like physical characteristics? Part of this is that it is good for slaves to have somebody telling them what to do all of the time hearkening back to this connection that we have already seen between slaves and children. Secondly, he establishes that there were a significant number of people like this who were naturally born to be slaves. It was not just some kind of fluke. Here he seems to be going with the fairly standard view that there are hordes of barbarians outside of Greece who absolutely just fit this description, and that the Greeks got it right by enslaving these types of people. One thing here that Aristotle admits, though, is that in the process of warfare, one might end up enslaving the wrong people, or those who weren't born to be slaves. And in that case, you could have people who were slaves by nomos, and not physis. Then he goes on to discuss what is the best method for managing a slave, both for the master and for the slave. He also talks about the manumission of slaves as incentive for good work from them, which is perhaps his biggest contradiction. Because if these slaves were born to be slaves and they need to be told what to do, and that being told what to do is good for them, then it is irresponsible for anyone to set them free, because by his own argument, they can't look after themselves, and so they need to be slaves for their own good. According to Aristotle, the daily routine of slaves could be summed up in three words, work, discipline, and feeding. Xenophon's advice is to treat slaves as domestic animals. That is to say, one should punish disobedience and reward good behavior. He says in his Oikonomicus, 
Quote, it is possible to make human beings more ready to obey you simply by explaining to them the advantages of being obedient. But with slaves, the training considered to be appropriate to wild beasts is a particularly useful way of instilling obedience. You will achieve the greatest success with them by allowing them as much food as they want. Those who are ambitious by nature will be motivated by praise. I reward the better worker with better clothing and shoes and give worse to the man who is worse. End quote. For his part, Aristotle prefers to see slaves treated as children, as we have seen, and to use not only orders, but also recommendations, as the slave is capable of understanding reasons when they are explained simply to him. We also have in Lysias' speech on the murder of Eratosthenes, where a slave girl is being threatened to reveal what her mistress has been up to, and the speaker says, quote, You can choose one of two courses, either to be whipped and thrown in the mill and suffer a life of perpetual misery, or if you tell me the truth, to get pardon from me for your wrongs and suffer nothing, end quote. And so physical punishment was probably fairly standard for slaves. Greek literature abounds with scenes of slaves being flogged. It was a means of forcing them to work or as punishment for bad behavior, as were the control of their rations, clothing, and rest. This violence could be allotted by the master or the supervisor, who was possibly also a slave, sort of like the head slave in charge. For example, at the beginning of Aristophanes' The Knights, two slaves complain of being bruised and thrashed without respite by their new supervisor. In The Wasps, the slave Xanthius, who sees a tortoise and becomes envious of his shell and thus can't feel the blows of being beaten, exclaims, quote, O lucky tortoises to have such skins, three times lucky for the case upon your ribs. How well and cunningly your backs are roofed with the tiling strong enough to keep out blows, whilst I'm cudgeled and tattooed to death, end quote. Tattoos here probably referred to both physical marks, as many were probably quite scarred, but some slaves also had real tattoos on them, particularly the Thracians. Naturally, overly abusive masters must have caused some badly treated slaves to run away. They could seek asylum in a temple or at an altar, as evidence from a line in Euripides' suppliants, quote, A wild beast can run for refuge to the rock, a slave to the altars of the gods, and a city can shelter from a storm under the protection of another city, end quote. In Athens, the place of asylum for slaves seems to have been the shrine of Theseus, called the Theseon, or the Shrine of the Furies, both of which were in the Agora. In other words, they would appeal to the gods for protection. A fragment of a lost play by Aristophanes, called Horai, has a slave say, quote, The best thing for me to do is to run to the temple of Theseus for refuge and stay there until I manage to find someone to buy me, end quote. So as we can see, just because a slave took refuge at a shrine, it didn't mean they were now free. They were still a slave and had to find another master. If a runaway slave was captured, he was branded with a hot iron upon his return as punishment. The fact that there is a title of a 4th century BC comedy by Antiphanes called Dropatakagos, or The Runaway Catcher, which is now lost, suggests that slave flight was not an uncommon occurrence. Still, there are no records of a large-scale Greek slave revolt comparable to those that we see at Rome. It can probably be explained by the relative dispersion of Greek slaves, which would have prevented any large-scale planning. Individual acts of rebellions of slaves against their master, though scarce, were not unheard of, though. For example, the judicial speech by Antiphon, titled On the Murder of Herodes, mentions a previously attempted murder of his master by a 12-year-old slave boy. 
The condition of slaves varied very much according to their status. Those who lived a particularly brutal existence were the slaves of the silver mines of Larion, as we mentioned earlier, and the Porni, were brothel prostitutes. There will be more on that in a future episode. While craftsmen, tradesmen, and bankers enjoyed relative independence, some of the most privileged Athenian slaves were those owned by the state. Known as the demosioi, or the public ones, they included among them the notaries, the jury clerks, the coin testers, and so forth. A few hundred in all. Athens also had a sort of police force made up of Scythian slaves that were the property of the state. Their tasks included keeping the peace in the ecclesia, guarding prisoners, carrying out executions when need be, and making arrests. In doing so, they could detain, physically restrain, and in the case of executions, even kill a citizen, which all sounds like something of a role reversal in the master-slave dichotomy. But this was because it was preferable for a slave to carry out these forms of restraint rather than another citizen. It seems to be the idea that if a slave did it, it was them acting as a tool of the state. But if another citizen did the same thing, it was a situation that involved a peer, and that was much more humiliating for the citizen and caused a greater degree of social tension. So it was far less damaging to the fabric of society to employ slaves as the tools of state. In addition, a large number of publicly owned slaves toiled as roadmenders. A small minority of slaves who had faithfully served their masters or mistresses were sometimes set free, especially as a reward for their loyalty, during a period of war or on the death of their master, after which they had the same rights as medics or resident foreigners. However, we know very little about their lives subsequently. It is highly unlikely, though, that they were integrated into Athenian society in the way that Roman freedmen were integrated into Roman society. Some slaves even were able to buy their freedom, because Athenian citizens refused to satisfy the demand for wage labor in the second half of the 5th century BC, due to their distaste for banasic work, as we discussed last episode. The conditions and opportunities for a limited number of slaves improved dramatically. Many of the craftsmen slaves were able to take a so-called friendly loan, known as Aranos, from their master. They lived apart from their master, literally being described as chorus oikuntis, or living separately, and paid him a proportion of their earnings, called apaphora, until they met the amount of the loan, at which point they were granted their freedom. For example, Tamarcus's shoemakers handled over two obols a day and kept the rest towards buying their freedom. Most who were able to achieve this were managers of shops and factories, bankers, captains of trading vessels, bailiffs, and artisans. Some slaves were very talented people, such as doctors, teachers, and architects. Many were good businessmen, the best known of whom was a man named Pazion in the early 4th century BC, who bought his freedom, made a fortune as a banker, and lent large sums to Athens in her time of need, which in turn made him a citizen. Upon his death, he left a million drachmas to the Athenian state. The slave's freedom could be either total or partial. In the former, the emancipated slave was legally protected against all attempts at re-enslavement, for instance by the children of his former master, who might have given the slave his freedom upon his death, and the children wished to renege. In the latter case, the emancipated slave could be liable to a number of obligations to the former master. They were at the master's whims, essentially. Plato, for example, in his laws, proposes that his slave present himself three times monthly at his home, and he forbade him from becoming richer than he was. So restrictions of some kind like that were written in the contract. 
The most restrictive contract, though, was the paramony, a type of enslavement of limited duration in which the master once again retained absolute rights. One example of this could be if the master was a farmer. Maybe the slave was free during certain months of the year, but was obligated to become a slave again when it was needed to work the fields. This prevented the owner from having to feed and house a slave year-round, but made sure his manpower was still at its highest when he needed it. There is no doubt that a large number of slaves were employed in the craft industries, some working for their owners and others rented out by them. Their jobs tended to be gender-specific. Men worked in factories making swords, shields, furniture, pottery, and other items, while women often worked in textile-related industries. We get evidence for the type of economic output in this endeavor in the legal speech of Ascanius, titled Against Tamarcus, when the speaker says, referring to Tamarcus, quote, His father left him a state which anyone else would have found sufficient to provide a liturgy, but he wasn't even able to keep it for himself, and he had nine or ten slave craftsmen who were skilled at producing shields, each of whom brought him an income of two opals a day, while the manager of the workshop brought in three. In addition, there was a woman who was skilled at weaving flax, end quote. We get similar evidence in a legal speech of Demosthenes, titled against Aphobus. Quote, the size of my property is clear from the witness's statements. You will see even more clearly how great this estate was if you listen to the details. For my father, men of the jury, left behind two workshops, each with highly skilled craftsmen. One had 32 or 33 knife makers, each worth five or six minai, and even the least skilled of them were not worth less than three minai. They provided him with an annual income of 30 minai before tax. Then there were 20 couch makers who had been given to him as security for an outstanding debt of 40 minai. They brought him 12 minai annually before tax. End quote. These were all slave craftsmen who were owned by the owner of the workshop and who had to hand over at least part of the profit that they were making, which is why he was getting a regular income. It's possible that these slaves retained some of it, which they used to live on themselves, or were able to save up to buy their freedom. Not only were there negative views about citizens engaging in craft industries, as we discussed last episode, but we also see some snootiness about citizens who made money, not from their land, but through owning manufacturing slaves. And the demagogue Cleon was one of the people who was particularly targeted for this. By no means were all craftspeople slaves, though, once again, as we also discussed last episode. The poorer urban citizens and medics also engaged in industry and commerce, and poorer urban citizens, medics, and slaves often work side by side, sometimes for the same wages. As building accounts make clear, slaves sometimes worked on building projects alongside Athenian citizens and medics. For example, a list of workers at one construction site, that being the Erechtheon and the Athenian Acropolis, included 86 laborers whose status can be determined. 24 citizens, 42 medics, and 20 slaves. They were all paid identical wages by the person that this job was contracted out to. For the slaves, though, it's not stated how much of their identical wages that they had to hand over to their master, or how much they were allowed to keep. In Xenophon's Memorabilia, which is one of his Socratic dialogues, we get some sense of the Greek view of working for somebody else that we talked about last episode, and how degrading it was deemed to be. One of the characters, Eutheros, in response to Socrates' suggestion that he might take a job as a land overseer in order to make some extra money, says, quote, I would find it very hard being a slave, Socrates, end quote. We can also see this view ringing through in a speech of Isaias, 
who describes a citizen who has his eye on everybody else's property. And in part of the speech, he says, quote, Dick Igenis stripped us of some of our property because he was stronger than we were. In others, he stood by and watched as they went to be hired laborers through their lack of necessities, end quote. So there's the sense that there's a degree of social degradation in working for somebody else and being paid for it. So we get here fairly clear divisions about who did what in Athenian society. And there are some types of work that in an ideal world that a citizen would not do, and instead that was work suitable for slaves or medics. That isn't unusual, though, to see types of social class prejudice associated with certain types of work, as it happens in lots of societies. But it was also helped in Athens by legislation, because only citizens could own land. In fact, many of the richest residents of Athens not only didn't own slaves, but they didn't own land either, since it was illegal for them to do so on both accounts. For the latter, they were permitted with a special grant called an ectesis, which entitled them either to purchase a home or establish a sanctuary for the worship of a foreign deity. However, these waivers were rare, and most were forced to live in rented homes. These were the polis's resident aliens, known as metoikoi, or medics, and they particularly played a key role in Athens' economy. Because of its empire, wealth, and commercial importance, craftspeople and entrepreneurs had come all over the Greek world to conduct business in Athens. Slaves who were granted their freedom became medics rather than citizens. Medics thus accounted for a significant proportion of the Athenian population, and in this respect, the Athenian polis was rather unusual. As a busy trading center, Athens attracted a large number of immigrants, from other parts of Greece and beyond. The history of foreign migration at Athens dates back to the Archaic period. Solon was said to have offered Athenian citizenship to foreigners who would relocate to his city in order to practice a craft. But medic status did not exist during the time of Solon, and scholars have tended to date its development to the reforms of Cleisthenes. However, the rate of the increase in the Athenian population in the years following the Persian War is difficult to explain by purely natural growth, suggesting that immigrants to Athens could still become Athenian citizens at this point, and so medic status did not yet exist either. The first known use of the word metoikis, though, is in Aeschylus' play The Persians, first performed in 472 BC. However, it has been argued that the word was used here in a non-technical sense, meaning nothing more than immigrant. And so some scholars date the origin of medic status in Athens to the 460s BC, while others say that it developed in 451-450 BC when Pericles introduced his citizenship law. Regardless, the number of medics in Attica perhaps reached a peak shortly before the outbreak of the Peloponnesian War, as they may have comprised as much as one-sixth of the total population, and then fluctuated in line with Athens' changing fortunes and prosperity. Although it is difficult to arrive at even a rough estimate of the total, it has been estimated that approximately 60% of the medic population lived in deems located in and around the urban center of Athens, 20% in the port of Piraeus, and the remaining 20% in rural and coastal deems. Funerary inscriptions reveal that at least 60 different Greek and non-Greek states were represented among the class of medics who resided throughout Attica. Medics also lived in many other polis besides Athens, but almost nothing is known of them in other parts of Greece. There were probably few, though, with the probable exception of Corinth, who itself was a commercial hub, but we have no evidence of their legal status there. There were also immigrants at the courts of tyrants and kings in Thessaly, Syracuse, and Macedon, whose status was decided by the current ruler. In Sparta and Crete, though, foreigners were not allowed to stay, with a few notable exceptions.
How long a foreigner could remain in Athens before he or she achieved medic status is not known, though. Regardless, each medic had to be nominated by an Athenian sponsor, called a prostatis, literally the one who stands on behalf of, and then be registered in a deem. The Athenians took this requirement very seriously. A medic without a sponsor was vulnerable to a special prosecution. If convicted, his property could be confiscated and he himself sold as a slave. For a freed slave, the sponsor was automatically his former owner. This arrangement exacted some extra duties on the part of the medic, yet the child of an ex-slave medic apparently had the same status as a freeborn medic. Citizenship was very rarely granted to medics, though. More common was the special status of equal rights, or isotaleia, under which they were freed from the usual liabilities, though it's not exactly clear how this was achieved. Regardless, those liabilities were strictly economical. They were not allowed to contract with the state to work the silver mines, since the vast wealth beneath the earth was felt to belong to the state, meaning its citizens. Medics were required to pay an annual tax called a metoikion, assessed at 12 drachmas per year for men in their households, and six for independent medic women, notably the Hetairai. More on them in a future episode. In addition, those wishing to sell goods in the agora were liable for another tax known as the Zeneca. They basically shared the burdens of citizenship, but without any of its political privileges. In a crisis, medics could be drafted into the navy as rowers. They were not, however, permitted to serve in the army as hoplites. If they were wealthy enough, they were also required to undertake the liturgies that other wealthy Athenian citizens contributed. In the religious sphere, though, all medics were able to participate in the festivals that were so central to the life of the city, except, of course, for some roles that were limited to citizens, such as priesthoods and so forth. The status divide between medic and citizen was not always clear, though. In the streets of Athens, there were often no physical signs to distinguish a citizen from a medic or a slave, and so sometimes the actual status a person had attained became a contested matter. Although local registers of citizens were kept, if one's claim to citizenship was challenged, the testimony of neighbors in the community was decisive. In a law court speech written by Lysias, a man presumed to be a medic claimed to be a citizen, but upon investigation, not by consulting official records, but by questions asked at the cheese market. It transpires that he may well be a runaway slave. At least the hostile account of the speechmaker attests. Of course, like with our other legal speeches, we don't have the speech written by the other side, nor do we have the verdict. Regardless, it's clear that medics whose family had lived in Athens for generations may have even attempted to pass as citizens. On a number of occasions, there were purges of the citizens' lists, effectively changing people who had been living as citizens into medic status. In typical Athenian fashion, a person so demoted could mount a challenge in court. If, however, the court decided the ejected citizen was in fact a medic, he would be sent down one further rung and sold into slavery. As we noted in episode 44, Pericles introduced a law requiring those claiming citizenship to prove that their mothers, as well as their fathers, were citizens. This is one of those times the state revised its citizen registrar and struck off a number of suspected medics who were believed to be claiming citizenship under false pretenses. Although Athenian men could still cohabitate with medic women, their children would not receive citizenship. This means that they could not vote or hold office. Neither could their children or their children's children. Pericles' common-law wife, Aspasia, belonged to the medic class, and it was for this reason that he required a decree of the assembly to grant citizenship to their children in an ironic twist. On the other hand, a medic man was forbidden from marrying an Athenian woman, and if he was found to be cohabiting with an Athenian woman, he was subject to a fine of a thousand drachmas. 
the equivalent of about three years' salary. The inability of medic women to produce sons who could enjoy Athenian citizenship played a large role in shaping the contours of Athenian society, creating two classes of women available as long-term partners to citizen men, medic mistresses and citizen wives. In addition, owners enjoyed the privilege of sexual access to their slaves, and a variety of prostitutes, both slave and free, were available for briefer encounters. This type of entertainment and prostitution was a big area of commerce for slaves and medics, and they ranged in prices depending on the services rendered. Athenaeus and Aristotle mentioned that the Athenians were concerned to keep the prices down so that these sorts of services were broadly accessible to all Athenian citizens, as well as medic men. Most medic women, of course, were housewives married to medic men. Besides a few of the higher-end prostitutes, who have found themselves in the historical record due to their clientele, we know very little about the lives of the everyday medic women. But since they were not vehicles in the transmission of citizenship, it is possible that masculine control over their behavior was less rigorous than in the case of Athenian citizen women. A larger percentage of them would have had jobs outside the home, and the range of occupations that they undertook may have been wider. It is possible that they mingled quite freely with Athenian women of the lower classes, whose lives would have resembled theirs in most respects. However, a difference in status, marked by their exclusion from the religious role of Athenian women, may have produced a social barrier. On the other hand, most medic men probably had humble occupations, such as metalworking, building, carpentry, retailing, and farming rented land. But a notable few, as we mentioned last episode, made large fortunes in industry or banking, and would have mixed, at least socially, on equal terms with members of the Athenian upper classes, as their wealth would allow them. Although medics were barred from the assembly and from serving as jurors, they did have the same access to the courts as citizens. They could both prosecute others and be prosecuted themselves. A great many migrants came to Athens to do business and were in fact essential to the Athenian economy. It would have been a severe disincentive if they had been unable to pursue commercial disputes legally. At the same time, they did not have the same legal rights. Unlike citizens, medics could be made to undergo judicial torture, and the penalties for killing them were not as severe as for killing a citizen. Medics were also subject to enslavement for a variety of offenses. These might either be failures to abide by their status obligations, such as not paying them a toy coin tax, or not nominating a citizen sponsor, or they might be their contamination of the citizen body, by marrying a citizen or claiming to be citizens themselves. In the studying the status of the medics, it is easy to gain the impression that they were an oppressed minority, but by and large, those who were Greek and freeborn had at least chosen to come to Athens, attracted by the prosperity of the large, dynamic, cosmopolitan city and the opportunities not available to them in their place of origin. Medics remained citizens of their cities of birth, which, like Athens, had the exclusionary ancestral view of citizenship common to ancient Greek cities. The large non-citizen community of Athens allowed ex-slave medics to become assimilated in a way not possible in more conservative and homogenized cities elsewhere. Their participation in military service, taxation, for the rich at Athens it was a matter of public display and pride, and cult must have given them a sense of involvement in the city, and of their value to it. Though notably, while Athenians tended to refer to medics by their name and deem of residence, the same democratic scheme used for citizens, on their tombstones, freeborn medics who died in Athens preferred to name the cities from which they had come and of which they were still citizens. It was partly through membership of private cultic associations that medics were able to consort together and retain their distinctive identity. 
Many such associations also functioned as dining clubs. One of these was devoted to the worship of the Phrygian god Sabazius, an exotic deity whose nocturnal rites included ecstatic dances accompanied by the aulus and tympanum. The cult of Sabazius aroused such animosity when it was first introduced into Athens that it was the butt of humor in no fewer than four comedies by Aristophanes. In one play, Sabazius, together with other foreign deities, are booted out of Athens. In the middle of the 4th century BC, however, the Athenians received an oracle ordering them to desist from persecuting the followers of Sabazius. This had the desired effect, and in time, the Athenians themselves became worshippers of the Phrygian god. Anyways, religion apart, to what extent were the Athenians tolerant of foreign influences, let alone the absorption of them? It's very possible that the presence of Greeks from other communities in their midst produced a more open-minded community than was the case elsewhere in the Greek world. Non-Athenian Greeks are sometimes ridiculed in Aristophanes' plays, but this hardly helps us ascertain to what the popular opinion was. Certainly, the Athenians would have encountered medics in a wide variety of cultural contexts. Medics participated in most religious ceremonies organized by the state, including the procession that formed part of the Panathenaic festival, and they were allowed to attend dramatic performances, which suggests that they were to some extent integrated into the life of the community. Furthermore, medic families mingle comfortably with families of citizens. A number of central characters in Plato's works were medics, and the most famous Platonic dialogue, The Republic, was set at the home of the rich medic Cephalus, whom Pericles had invited to Athens from Syracuse. In fact, the status of its speakers as citizen or medic are never mentioned. Furthermore, many of Athens's most distinguished intellectuals were medics, such as the philosopher Anaxagoras from Asia Minor and the rhetorician Gorgias from Sicily. There is another significant occupation that we've barely discussed, one that played a major role in the Greek economy, and one that was performed by both male and female slaves and medics alike. That, of course, is prostitution. But before we get there, we need to discuss the goddess of sexual pleasure herself. So join me next time on the History of Ancient Greece, Episode 70, The Goddess of Seduction.